I think what technology enables is going to be some combination of all of these different technologies coming together to enhance our lives. People, one of the things that I, I talk a lot about is what exactly is a robot? And when people think about robots, they think Terminators, they think uh, large humanoid creatures that inhabit our space. But to be fair, to be honest, I think robots are actually already around us. There are Nest thermostats, there are cell phones, there are dishwashers. They're the things that take action on our behalf, that sense our environment, make a plan and act on it. And uh, there, there are, you know, Tesla, Tesla self-steering, self, uh, self auto-steering cars. Uh, those are robots. And um, I think we're already leveraging the technology around those today to help us live better lives. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. Ding dong, I got your burrito. By the way, I'm flying. Today we're talking to Dr. Tessa Lau. She's the founder and CEO of Dusty Robotics, the company who's on a mission to address the massive construction industry labor shortage by using drones and robots on the job site. Prior to Dusty, she was CTO and co-founder of Savioke, an AI robotics company focused on hotel room delivery. And prior to that, she spent 11 years at IBM focused on automation and giving people superpowers. And yes, in today's episode, we're talking drones, what makes scaling a robot fleet so hard? Why Tessa is such a big proponent of universal basic income? How far we actually are from human-level intelligence? Why we'll have full self-driving in 10 years? The big risks of building robots that look like humans? And the state of drone deliveries, your tacos, and more. We're going into this episode hard with somebody who's at the leading edge of the research and the entrepreneurship, making it all happen. Before we jump into today's episode, know that we've got some awesome bonuses and free features for you guys over at disruptors.fm slash free. If you hop on the site, enter your email address, you'll get notified whenever we've got bonus giveaways going on, coupons for cool products, new podcast episodes, and exclusive content only for our email list. Again, that's disruptors.fm. Just throw in your email address. And now, without further ado, I give you Tessa Lau. Quick timeout. Do you exercise or want the best from your brain and body on a daily basis? I know I do. And if you do, you should check out Onnit's top performance line of brain and body enhancing keto, paleo, and pretty much everything friendly supplements like Alpha Brain, MCT Oil, and Total Human. Prefer a solid grass-fed whey or a double caffeinated drip to go hard? What about a powerhouse set of probiotics? They got it all and the science to back up their formulations. Plus, you can get a 10% off offer just for listeners by going to disruptors.fm slash onnit with two N's, O-N-N-I-T, and using coupon code disruptors at checkout. Again, that's disruptors.fm slash onnit, O-N-N-I-T, and using disruptors at checkout. They have everything that elite performers need, mentally and physically, to be at the best. Are you looking to grow yourself and your bottom line in the process? Do you need help scaling, growth hacking, and marketing, or with fundraising and introductions? If you want to 10x your business and build towards a sustainable future, be that a startup or a Fortune 500 company, I love helping businesses change the world for the better. I've been a founder, built startups and seven-figure businesses, coached and advised dozens and more, and learned my passion and purpose is pushing entrepreneurs to succeed. If you're a winner, aiming big, willing to go hard, and interested in potentially working together to uplevel yourself and your business, I'd love to chat. mattward.io slash coaching for more details. And now let's get on with the episode. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Where the obsession with robots, what was it for you? <laughs> That's a great story. So I was at IBM. I'd been at IBM for 11 years and I was looking for something next. And I, uh, I had never considered going into robots. My background is computer science. I got a PhD from University of Washington doing uh, smart interfaces for intelligent software using AI and human-computer interaction. And I worked on software things for a long time at IBM. And I'd never considered robots. I thought people working on robots were crazy. But then when I was looking for what I could do next, I ran across this uh, project at a company called Willow Garage. 
which was called Robots for Humanity. And it was a project designed to enable people with disabilities to do activities of daily living. Uh, They were working with a quadriplegic uh, named Henry Evans, and Henry was programming robots. Uh, He was confined to a wheelchair. He couldn't do anything for himself. He couldn't lift his hand to scratch his nose. And he was programming robots to do those basic tasks on his own behalf. And I thought that was incredibly inspiring and empowering, and I decided to get into robotics. I joined Willow Garage and haven't looked back. Speaking of, just pivoting off of that a little bit, for people that are in similar situations like that, do you think the future is a robotic body? Do you think the future is virtual reality? Do you think it's something in between? I think it's all of the above. I think what technology enables is going to be some combination of all of these different technologies coming together to enhance our lives. People, one of the things that I I talk a lot about is what exactly is a robot? And when people think about robots, they think Terminators, they think uh, large humanoid creatures that inhabit our space. But to be fair, to be honest, I think robots are actually already around us. There are Nest thermostats, there are cell phones, there are dishwashers. They're the things that take action on our behalf, that sense our environment, make a plan and act on it. And uh, there, there are, you know, Tesla, there's also our self, self, uh, self-steering, auto-steering cars. Uh, those are robots. And um, I think we're already leveraging the technology around those today to help us live better lives. Ooh, big picture question. How do we differentiate between robots and slaves? And how do we know the difference going forward? That's a really funny question. Uh, I think it was Mahatma Gandhi that says you can, uh, you can judge a society based on how it treats its weakest members. And uh, the interesting thing about robotics is that I think they tell more about us than they do about them in terms of how we treat robots. Uh, Yeah, you know, we can press robots into work as slaves. I prefer to think of robots as doing the stuff that people don't want to do. And it's the dull, dirty, dangerous tasks that are getting automated away with robotics today. And I think that makes everyone's lives better. I would definitely agree there. But do you think, okay, let's let's go real big. Do you think that we're going to get to the point where we're not able to tell if there is consciousness? Oh, that's a good question. Not what whether is, it's there or not, but if we're not right. able to tell. It's sort of like the Turing test, right? You've heard of that, right? You know, you can ask a computer a bunch of questions. And if you can't distinguish its questions from a human, then that computer must be intelligent. And I think I think it's the same with consciousness. It doesn't really matter how that consciousness is embodied, whether it's in silicon or in wetware. I believe, I, I do believe it's going to be a long time before we see robots exhibiting the signs of consciousness. But I'm all for it. If robots start exhibiting those signs, I would call that conscious. The scary thing is, whether they're conscious or not, we won't know. We have this that's right. There's even a word for it. It's um, I can't think of the word, but it's when you put human-like characteristics onto something else. Anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism. So it gets into the it gets into the West world. It gets into the oh wow, uh, my dog is such a good boy. He's um, he's so hardworking and tedious, or whatever these human traits are. Yeah. I I know it's I know it's far out. Where do you see where do you see us headed in terms of that conversation, and then yeah. when that starts to potentially become a problem? You know what? So I've worked in robotics for a long time, and my last company, Savioc, was building robots that delivered room service to guests in hotels. We created this three foot tall robot called Relay, and Relay would live in the front uh, in the front lobby of a hotel, and every time someone needed room service, Relay would trundle down the hallway, take the elevator, and deliver it to the guest room. And we had so many incidents of people treating that robot like a person that we started calling him he. And we start and people started ascribing personalities to their little robot butler and saying that he was acting up or saying that he was really polite today and ascribing all of these human qualities to them. And so I started looking into that. And I found out that that's not unusual at all. People have been anthropomorphizing robots for a really long time. In fact, I found that most, more than half of the people who own Roombas give them names, So, which is kind of really, really mind-balling to me. Uh, mine's not called anything but Roomba. But, you know, it's, it's a characteristic of human nature. People name their boats. People name their tools. People name their stuffed animals. And these are all creatures that aren't even close to being robots. 
but people want to create that sense of familiarity with the things that surround them. Is it we want to create the familiarity or we want to be like kids? We want to believe in Santa Claus. Uh, I don't know what it is for you. I definitely, I think it's really interesting how um, people appropriate that technology and make it part of their lives. So delivery robots, that's become big lately, both with drones and robots. Where are we at? Where were you guys at earlier? And where do you see it headed? So when we started Savvy Oak, it was about 2013. And there were no delivery drones. Uh, robots weren't very uh, widespread yet. There were no self this was way before self driving cars or any of that conversation had started. Uh, this was before the sidewalk delivery robots came to be. Uh, we were just looking for an application where we could actually bring robots out into the world doing something that robots are good at, which is uh, figuring out how to get from point A to point B without getting lost and without bumping into things on the way. And so we really, Savioc really pioneered that concept of delivery robot, uh, specifically for the hotel space, because that was the market that we were going after. Why did you choose hotels? Just because it was simple and easy to do? Yeah. So back then, um, if you fast, if you go backwards, you know, six years in the robotics industry, robotics was still mostly in the lab. Uh, universities, it was big government uh, projects like Boston Dynamics and you know, military contracts. And there wasn't really much robotics. There was there's iRobot and Roombas in the home, but there wasn't really robots everywhere. And so what we were looking for was a place where the environment was something that's conducive to robot operation, uh, not as unstructured as the home and not as structured as the factory. And we landed on service uh, industries like hotels or restaurants or hospitals as an interesting middle ground. The home is very unstructured, right? Every home is different. You've got all of these furnishings and toys and things strewn about. It's very difficult, challenging for a robot to operate in. Um, on the other hand, a factory is a pretty known environment. You have car, uh, car making robots, for example, or warehousing robots, distribution robots that just do the same thing over and over again. And so we thought there had to be a middle ground uh, in between those two, that environment that's less structured than the factory, but more structured than the home. And so that's why we got into the service industry. And the less structured part is where we often run into issues as we're trying to roll this out. Is that why we haven't seen very much adoption in terms of delivery stuff? Absolutely. Um, some of the challenges around these unstructured environments make it really hard for robots to operate. It's the same challenges that make self-driving cars uh, very difficult to turn into reality. Um, once you're in these less structured environments, anything can happen. At Savioc, we had robots that were rolling down the hallway that had to deal with broken plates sitting in the middle of the aisle, or that had to deal with uh, people that were pushing them out of the elevator, or dogs uh, that were sticking their nose into inside the robot, trying to figure out what's inside. And so all of these things are, uh, they're all uh, challenging to deal with in the environment because you can't possibly think of what they are before so you have to create a system that's robust enough to deal with that. Ooh, I like the way you phrase that. You can't think about it beforehand. So robots, automation, jobs. Do we go net positive or net negative in terms of job creation, job loss? It's a very um, polarizing question. And um, in fact, it's like all over politics these days, right? Automation, job loss, uh, robots taking jobs. I think I've watched the narrative um, from when I just got involved in robotics to today uh, grow and evolve. I think that um, for a long time, people were people are afraid of the unknown. That's that's just human nature, right? We grew up. We're comfortable in our current environment and anything that's new that's coming along that could threaten our, our lifestyle or our livelihood, um, there's a lot of fear around that. And that fear spills over into robots because robots, you know, in the worst case, and if you look at the sci-fi movies where robots look like us and they could turn into us and they could uh, take over from us. And that's where that fear, I think, is coming from, because people are, are fundamentally insecure about their, their status. So, but I've seen, I've seen the, uh, the narrative shift in robotics from just fear of robots taking jobs to, well, let's have robots do the things that people don't want to do. Uh, there are plenty of jobs out there that no one wants to do because they're dull, dirty, and dangerous. And uh, that's where robots are starting to shine. Uh, at Dusty, my current company right now, we're also finding places where people just aren't that good at a job. Um, and we can create robot helpers 
that empower those people to be able to be much better at that portion of their job than they would be otherwise and allow them to have a better working environment and be a lot more productive. So I, would, I think it's changing. I would agree with all of that, but I would say it's a diplomatic way to answer it too. So mm-hmm. the problem I see is there's a lot of shit jobs people don't want to have, mm-hmm. but they have them regardless, which means they need to have. Yep. What happens when they no longer have that job they need to have? So this is really interesting. So I think we as a society have coupled uh, having a job with being able to sustain basic life. You know, that's just something that we take for granted. And what I think is that those two shouldn't be coupled. What automation is bringing to us is a possibility of a world in which people don't have to do work in order to create the environment that we want to live in. And once those tasks are all handled by robots, then I think we need to break that connection between having a job and being able to feed your family and have a roof over your head. How do we break that connection? What are some of the more promising strategies you've heard proposed? I'm a fan of UBI, universal basic income. I think the the only way to move forward as a society is to ditch that notion of you have to have a job in order to be able to provide for yourself and, and survive. I think UBI is, is the hu- only humane way I've seen to actually make that, uh, to, to make a society where people are are able to thrive in this new world of automation and robotics. Do you think we're capable of that without some type of violent upheaval? Um, that's, I, it's a tough question, but it's one of it's those a ones tough where... Question. Every, yeah. yeah. So, you know, I've been following the Democratic debates. Um, I'm really interested in uh, one of the candidates, Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang. Who's proposing a freedom dividend of $1,000 a month for every American American adult. And, you know, he has some really logical entrepreneurial uh, thinking around how that could actually work. I'm seeing him get a lot of support from both the left and the right. And I think what he's saying mirrors what I've concluded about automation and the economy, which is that we can't keep going forward thinking that everyone's going to have a job and that's what is going to provide. Well, yeah, especially because... The flaw with GDP is it always has to go up, but we can't right. continuously consume more because there's only so much to be consumed. You know, everyone talks about consumerism being this bad thing. And, and unfortunately, that's what our economy is linked to. It's, it's linked to us buying more and more crap. And uh, I don't think that's the right sustainable path for us. Especially because capitalism is based on scarcity, not abundance. Exactly. It creates uh, it creates some interesting dynamics. So you decided to tackle the construction industry this time. Talk about mm-hmm. a big behemoth with tons of money and inefficiency. Right. W- was that the thinking process? How did you how did you go about starting Rust- Dusty Robotics? Not Rusty. Rusty would be a totally different connotation. <laughs> yeah, Dusty came about because I've been in the robotics industry for a while at Savio, and we were. When did you get started? I remember you you said that before. Yeah, Zesty is a little over a year old now. We uh, started the company in April of 2018. So we've been going at it for almost a year and a half now. And uh, when I got into it, I'd been looking around for different industries where I could start my next venture. We'd been in the hotel industry for a long time and seen how robots could help there. But I, I knew there had to be something better. Uh, one of the challenges with robotics is that usually robotics companies tackle jobs that are done by minimum wage workers, because you assume that the easiest things to automate are the things that require the least amount of skill. And so when I was looking for opportunities to start a new venture in the robo- using robotics as a, as a technology, I was looking for places where it's not just minimum wage work that we're actually assisting with, it's actually highly skilled well-paid work. And so I looked into construction. It was really interesting because yes, it's one of the biggest industries on the planet, but it's also predominantly based on manual labor. And it's based on very skilled, trained, valuable manual labor. And it's also suffering labor shortages. They can't hire, construction companies can't hire enough workers to actually build the buildings that we need to live in and work in. And they're also slower to adopt new technology. So they're not as um, automated and not as uh, efficient as other comparable industries like manufacturing. So all of those things came together to say this is probably a really good place 
to start a robotics company. I started digging into it and I found a lot of opportunities where robotics could make a difference. Digging into it, pun intended. How do you build a hardware robotics company? I got to imagine that takes a solid chunk of change to get started. Robots are, um, so I've been building robots for a while and uh, it's not cheap for sure. But the interesting thing about robotics is that you learn a lot as you go through this process. I know a lot more about building robots than I did five years ago before we started Savvy Oak. And one of the things about uh, building robots is that bigger robots are more expensive than smaller robots. Uh, it, the price of building a robot and bringing company to bear around a robotic product, uh, it probably grows with the volume of the robot that you're designing and creating. So small robots, when I went into the construction industry and I started asking a lot of uh, construction professionals questions around where could I uh, build technology to solve some of their pain points, I was biased towards smaller robots. How can we create a small Roomba-sized robot that would do valuable work on a construction site? Uh, And so that's how I uh, navigated that space to try to figure out where the value was at a price point that we could reasonably deliver on venture funding. And what's it do? Uh, So Dusty Robotics is in the market of uh, building robots that do useful building work for people on construction sites. Uh, One of the challenging problems of construction is that, so today, um, the way a building gets built is that there's an architectural and engineering team that designs the building in CAD. So they'll usually use uh, either AutoCAD or a 3D modeling system like Revit, uh, in order to design that building in 3D. Uh, so they'll spec out all of the floors, all of the walls, all of the, the pipes and fixtures that go into that building. And then they'll hand it over to the people in the field to have that building get built. And the problem is that once you hand it over to the people in the field, those are all workers who usually work off of paper drawings and they use measuring tape and they use string and Sharpies. And they try to translate this beautiful, precise 3D design into the dirt and sticks and bricks of a construction site. And during that process, a lot of information gets lost, some due to human error, some due to mistakes. And so the problem of taking that design and uh, actually marking it in the field, it's called layout, is uh, one of the the central parts of what makes a construction project successful or not. Um, So imagine a high rise, like a multifamily apartment building in downtown and it's got, you know, maybe 20 to 50 stories. Each of those stories has a number of apartments on it. The, as that tower goes up, they pour the concrete. And uh, on top of that concrete, the first thing they do is actually have a hire a guy with, on his hands and knees using measuring tape and string to mark out the locations of where everything should get built on that floor. So he'll draw lines, he'll write marks, he'll uh, make note of where a pipe comes out through the floor, where stuff gets hung from the ceiling. Um, He'll draw out the locations of all the walls and doors and windows that go on that floor. And he's basically marking it based on physical paper plans. And so we looked at this problem and we thought that is a great place where robots could do better than people. So what we imagined and what we're building is something like a little Roomba with a printer strapped to it. And it drives around on that concrete floor, very nice, easy, flat surface. And it has the plans in its head and it plans out a path. And it figures out how to uh, draw, how to drive straight down those uh, lines and mark those points and locations of places where the builders are going to come through and install all of the walls and the fixtures. How do you deal with a market like construction? Isn't it relatively low margin, which means there's not a lot of investment into infrastructure, investment into the larger optimization? Yeah. So construction is really interesting as a market. What we found is actually that the GCs that we're talking to are really hungry for technology that can make their process better. Uh, They know that they're in this labor-dominant industry where uh, they have to hire enough people, a big enough crew to get their job done, and that has its own headaches. They know exactly how much it costs to pay that labor. There's all this overhead around um, uh, workers' comp and insurance and liability. And if we can deliver a solution that assists that labor in being a lot more productive and not making any mistakes, that's huge. And so we're not actually seeing much. In fact, we're, we're seeing a lot of excitement from the general contractors about what we're building because they see its potential to really change the game in terms of how buildings get built. 
Speaking of changing the game, what's the future of construction and real estate? So we have now, people are talking about 3D printing houses. We have prefabbed. We're going or at least moving towards net zero emission homes. Where do you see us headed in the next 10, 20 years? So I think there's a lot of going, there's going to be a lot of push towards improvement in the, the manufacturing process. If you compare construction to manufacturing, right, you know, a long time ago, 50 years ago, manufacturing was even longer than 50 years ago. Manufacturing was all one-off. It was all artisans at home building a single product, start to finish, using their hands. And now we've moved towards a world in which, you know, the cell phone in your pocket is built by robots on an assembly line really quickly and really cheaply. That's how come we can surround ourselves with all these electronic gadgets. Construction is still in that bespoke one-off world. Every single construction project, every single building is different from the one that comes after it. And it's built on site in place by guys using uh, hand-powered tools uh, and assembling lumber and steel together to form that thing, one of a kind. Um, Every building gets designed and built as if it's the first of its kind. So I think what we're moving towards in the next 10, 20 years is bringing some of that thinking around automation and streamlined assembly from manufacturing and bringing that to the construction world. How do we do that without creating Karl Marx Boulevard, where everything is bleak and miserable or it's all the same? You know, that that's... Are you worried about that at all? No, that, that's not going to happen. So there are ways to get economies of scale without making everything look the same. In the, in the manufacturing world, uh, we're now capable of, built, of creating, you know, cell phones come in all these different colors, for example, where there's different models of them. You can get, in some cases, you can pre-order a car with just the features that you want, and it comes off the assembly line with your configuration. What happens in the construction world is that the economies of scale come from pre, uh, reusing components that all, like Lego bricks, come together to form a different shape and style building. So all Legos are the same, right? But you can use Legos to create pretty much anything. And so that's what's going to happen in construction. Very cool. Very cool. So I want to I wanna zoom back a little bit. We were talking about robots. You were deploying a lot. And I know you talked about this in a, in a recent talk or a past mm-hmm. talk. Just the effect, the differences of deploying one robot versus 100 versus 1,000. Once you get that scale, the complexities that come in. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting problem. Um, my last job at Savioke before I left was running the operations organization, which was tasked with how do we scale up this robot product that we've built from 10 robots in the field to thousands. And uh, it's a it's a very challenging problem because robotic technology, although we are starting to see it show up everywhere, it's still uh, there's still a lot of research to it. There's still a lot of unsolved problems around robotics. And so bringing a research technology out into production and making it scale, making it robust, uh, there's still a lot of unsolved problems there. So operationalizing robotics is is not just like this cookie cutter project where you can just turn the crank. And all of a sudden, 100 more units come off the, you know, come off the production line. You actually need to solve challenging problems around the technology in order to make it viable to operate at scale. One of the problems that we solved at Savvy Oak, for example, was how do we uh, have humans available behind the scenes to take over when a robot misbehaves in the field? It's sort of like a safety driver in a car but it's remote. It's sort of like a call center for robots. In fact, one of the things I did at Saviok was bring up our first call center to be able to deal with robot emergencies. How do you deal with the ratio? So you don't want one to one, but at the same time, if you've got to have your car wait on hold while it's driving off a bridge because a human's not coming on board, how do we think about that? And it'll probably be different for each industry. It'll absolutely be different for each industry and each robotic product. Um, self-driving cars is very different from Savio's relay delivery robot. Uh, Relay would spend most of its life perfectly comfortable and confident, trundling down the hallway on its own, not having any problems. So uh, 90, probably more than 99% of its operating time were fully, was fully automated. But occasionally, they would get into these sticky situations. You know, they might get, uh, in the early days, for example, before we improved our navigation technology, uh, relay robots would get stuck behind laundry carts in a hotel that were blocking the aisle. And so we actually had our call center staff, uh, we gave them the ability to teleoperate our robot. So essentially give it instructions on, on how to drive around 
the laundry cart safely. And then as we improved the technology, that no longer became necessary because Relay was able to do that kind of navigation on its own. Because it had the sensors and cameras built on board? And it had the sensors and it had better software that was able to uh, uh, fit itself between narrower and narrower uh, side pathways. Which is critical to deployment. But what about the privacy issue? How do you think Mm -hmm. about that from your perspective? Privacy. So pretty much every robot needs sensors in order to operate. Um, You know, in fact, I'm even seeing a lot of cars on the road now that have uh, cameras facing in all directions. They have sonars. They have some even have LIDAR. We're living, we're becoming uh, people who live in this world that has sensors all around us. I'm not sure what the answer is. I don't think we can opt out of that because it's part of our society. One of the answers that we did come up with at Savvy Oak was in a hotel. We were operating this robot that had uh, cameras pointing in all directions, or mostly forward. And, and that was primarily for our robot to operate, right? It was you know, Our robot needs to be able to see its environment in order to be able to drive safely around people and obstacles. And so we would purposely blur those sensors whenever we were pointed at things that we shouldn't be seeing. So for example, when Relay drove up to a guest room and it, it, uh, it rang the phone to tell the guests that we had arrived, someone would come to the door, uh, open it and pick up their delivery. As soon as we arrived at the door, we would blur the cameras because we didn't want to look into people's private space. And that preserves some privacy for the guests who are staying in the hotels. So you guys do that, but Amazon or Facebook are actually like going, okay, how much details can we get as quickly as possible to use this to be valuable? How do, how do we set up, is it a GDPR type strategy? Because there is massive incentivization right now to collect all of this data. You see a lot of startups where they have an okay business model, but it's awesome. It's okay, VCs, because on the back end, we got this data and we can sell these people to these other data brokers, and that's the real money. How do we how do we handle something like that? Yeah, so I mean, it's not just robotics, right? All of, all of those examples that you're giving, uh, all of the behavior that we exhibit online, like what links we click on, what emails we read, all of that stuff is being given to some company. And that data is incredibly valuable. That's how they're that's how they're able to provide free services to people like us because we're providing their data mining algorithms with all of that information about human behavior. Do you think it's the point where it eventually gets to handing out free donuts where we can't really help ourselves from the donuts, but eventually you've eaten so many donuts that humanity no longer is fit to survive? Something <laughs> where, some, some something where the slippery slope leads to a big, big problem. Yeah. I think I, I, that's a really good question. Um, I love donuts, but as a vegan, it's actually hard to find really good vegan donuts. So um, there you go. It made your life easier, right? There you go. I think when we think about what we as a society want from our technology, there are some really critical questions that we need to be asking that we're probably not asking enough of. I think this is a policy question. It's not a consumer question. And I, but I think that people need to be informed enough to be able to uh, shape what that policy should be on our behalf. And I'm honestly not sure our current politicians have enough of that uh, knowledge. I think GDPR goes is, is a great first step at trying to establish those uh, protections, consumer protections. Uh, I don't think that's the last word in terms of this argument, because I think, as you pointed out, as robotics are, are coming online, that's making available a lot more different classes of information that we need to safeguard and figure out what to do with. But on the other hand, I think part of it is also it's the price of living in a society, right? You know, would you give up your Nest thermostat at home because it also is capable of observing your habits at home? You know, there's convenience that we get out of having those sensors. And so I think that the, in my opinion, the right solution is to have a better conversation as a society around what are the true costs and benefits of having that kind of data be made available and made use of. Yeah, because going backwards just as bad as going forwards in a lot of instances. Mm-hmm. How do you think about housing? You're in Silicon Valley and it's kind of it's kind of a shit show right now when it comes to price of real estate and the ability of people to find an actual house. Yeah. You're you're dealing in construction, you're dealing with the future of that. Where are we headed there? Housing is a really interesting one. One of the reasons I got into construction is because this housing crisis that someone has to do something about it. And one of the ways in which we're doing something about it is we're making it easier and more affordable to build multifamily housing through robots, right? I think robotic automation is probably one of the only ways in which we're going to be able to solve some of these building challenges that we have coming up for us. 
Um, just because the current way of doing things using labor is just not sustainable. And is that going to be what we end up primarily using robots for in the future is all of the most unsustainable enterprises first before we get into the, where does it make sense to automate? So for instance, with with the delivery bots you guys were doing, how long did it take for the hotel to make back the cost of the worker that would have been doing it instead? Yeah. You know, the challenging thing about being in the services environment was that the what you're the, the work that we were automating you know delivery it, it's, it's a runner task it's a minimum wage task there's not a lot of uh, value in that task being performed i think what we found in the construction industry there's a it's a much higher value task that we're performing layout automation is done by some of the most highly trained highly paid workers on the job site because in order to um because having a correct layout makes a huge difference in the success of the project. If, if you can imagine if your layout crew lays out the wrong thing uh, or misses part of it, right? You, you get the wrong building out. And I've seen, I've heard of projects that go over budget by millions of dollars because of layout problems. So that task that we're trying to, that we're automating right now is actually a very valuable one and it's critical to the flow of construction. And so the reason I think construction is, is hugely a great place for robots is because there's a lot of opportunity to get the outcome that we want by deploying robots to do the tasks where people just aren't that good at it and where you really want the certainty that something is getting done right the first time. And that's what robots can bring you. And yet a lot of that's hard to see ahead of time. Do you have kids? Mm-hmm. I do not have kids. If you if you did, how would you then advise them to think about the future and education when there are so many uncertainties and certain fields will certainly be automated and other ones, a lot of people would have argued that construction was tougher to do. How do you, yeah. how, how would you advise someone thinking about that? Well, I think building robots is a really good career choice right now. I definitely think that's the future. Or fixing them. Someone's going to have to fix them as well. Or operating them or, yes, absolutely. What do you think about the smart, dumb robot debate? Should we, should we try to increase intelligence or is that a is that a cat's whatever we don't want to open up? I think that, so there's a lot of debate about human level intelligence and some really notable people have gone on record uh, with one position one way or another. I'm in the camp that, you know, I've been in AI for a really long time. I got my PhD in machine learning, among other things. And so I've, you know, and, and in fact, I actually got into AI because I was intrigued by the idea of creating human level consciousness in machines. I'm very fascinated by how the mind works and uh, trying to mimic human behavior in software is a really interesting, really interesting fundamental challenge. But having been in that industry for a really long time, I know how far we are from actually being able to recreate the behaviors that make us human. So what I think we're going to have for the next couple of decades is we're going to have machines that can do individual tasks like our layout robot or like a room service delivery robot. We'll get more and more of those machines that can take on single or small uh, scoped tasks in our world. But it's going to be a long time before we see machines that are generally intelligent and capable of higher level reasoning. I have a sneaky suspicion that if we do solve AGI, it's not going to be in the ways that we're going about artificial intelligence today of increasing power, increasing data sets, increasing efficiency. It'll be something stepwise. Mm-hmm. Totally agree. I think we see that a lot in robotics and AI. There are some breakthroughs that just enable a huge new class of applications, but it's hard to see what those breakthroughs are going to be before they happen. What are the most interesting things you're seeing in the field and in the areas around you today? Most interesting things that we're seeing. Um, well, I mean, unfortunately, I'm deep into construction right now. So my interests are pretty heavily skewed toward what's actually happening on construction sites. Let me see. I think in terms of construction, one of the things I'm interested in is the dig- ongoing digitization of the construction process. Uh, that's a broader push. We're part of it, but we're not the only player in that space by far. It's one of those industries. It's it, Construction is actually the second least digitized industry uh, on the planet. Uh, the least digitized industry is hunting and agriculture. And so construction is down near the bottom when it comes to adopting new technology and uh, leveraging that to increase efficiency. But I'm seeing a lot of progress in that. So over the past, like, uh, let's say 10 years, we've seen people adopt CAD software that allows them to physically model their buildings before they actually try to build them, when before it would have been just a much more manual, a much more analog process. 
And so all of these things are creating an environment which will enable more automation in the future because those CAD drawings of buildings, they call them BIM, Building Information Modeling. Those BIM models are basically the instruction sets for robots to go out and build the thing. It's just that we haven't built those robots yet. And so I'm really interested in that potential of um, leveraging that wave of digitization in the building industry and using that as a, a wedge to increase the adoption of robotics. Uncanny Valley, should we always avoid building anything that remotely resembles humans when it comes to robotics? Yes. <laughs> um, diving deeper into that. So when we were at Savio and we were designing Relay, we deliberately made Relay not human. Uh, we gave him the hint of eyes and a little notion of a smile. Uh, this was the work done by uh, one of the Savio co-founders, Adrian Canoso. And uh, so he designed uh, Relay to be more like an R2-D2 style robot. And he, and he designed Relay not to speak because that would have uh, falsely created the impression that uh, Relay was more capable than he was. Instead, uh, we gave Relay beeps and boops and we gave him little uh, gestures. He would have a little shimmy wiggle that would indicate when he was happy. And we deliberately created the impression that Relay was about as smart as a dog. The fact is he's actually dumber than a dog, but that was the level of intelligence that we wanted to create. And we did that so that people knew how to interact with him. We didn't want people uh, trying to speak a voice command to Relay and having him not understand because we, we hadn't programmed that in yet. And so it's about how do, you, how do people communicate with robots and how can we encourage them to communicate at the level that the robot can understand? And then there's Google Duplex, where they intentionally try to make it seem like a human. Is that something that'll be regulated against? I mean, those were pretty convincing demos. Obviously, they were the best ones, but they were pretty convincing. Google Duplex is scary amazing. I'm really impressed by it. You think we go, think it, go ahead? No, I, I think um, what really excites me about Google Duplex is that there's all of this offline world. It's sort of like construction, right? Construction is... Uh, one of these these less uh, less less very digitized physical, industries, yeah. very physical, very real world based, and and there's a lot of uh, stuff that we interact with that's still that way. Uh, you know, your car mechanic or your hairdresser or you know the restaurant that you want to go to tonight. The interface to these services is still you call them up on the phone and you ask questions. And so what Google is doing with Duplex is they've they've created a way to turn that analog world into something that can be called through an API. You can actually write some software that will manipulate that world. And it will do that by picking up the phone, placing this call in this human sounding voice and interacting with the person on the other end. And that's really exciting because that's making the rest of the world part of accessible from this software automation ecosystem that um, that's being created. Which has been where all the money and efficiency gains have been definitely for the exactly. past 10, 20 years. Absolutely. And then on the flip side, we also have robocallers, displacement, et cetera. At least they finally pushed through that. You're getting fined for robocalling deal, but I, I don't know about you. I still get robocalls. All the time. Do you think we move towards a world that's like her in terms of the movie where the guy falls in love with an AI that's really just an AI in love with everyone that's not in love with anyone? <laughs> I, I watched her. Um, yeah, I should have said spoiler alert there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I saw it. It wasn't one of my favorite movies of all time. I, I love the concept of this AI in the cloud. In fact, you know, one of the reasons I got into AI was because I wanted to create something like that. I don't know. I don't know if it would take the shape of someone like her and that AI, but the idea of uh, augmenting people so that they can, uh, so that they, they have this assistant who's just, you know, everyone would love an assistant, right? It's just that, you know, we can't afford it or, you know, it doesn't, doesn't exist for us in our day-to-day -day life. But there's all these things that we have to do. And sometimes it's like stuff that we don't want to do. Sometimes it's just like finding out more information about something or doing the research about where to go on vacation or, you know, figuring out how do I schedule this so that I can fit in all the things that I want to do, right? All of those things, there are all these things that everyone has to do that would be better if you had an assistant. And I would love to have a personal assistant that was tightly coupled with my calendar and knew where I would like to spend my time and what my preferences are. Google is starting to be that. You know, I have a Google smart speaker at home and you can ask it a lot of questions and it's, it's integrated with my calendar. And, you know, we use it when we're having dinner to ask like trivia questions or little, you know, questions like how much does this weigh and how much does, uh, we use it while cooking, we use it all the time. 
So it's starting to become reality, um, but the level of personalization that you had with her is still not there yet. And I think that's probably the next frontier. And the level of security, the IoT devices have almost none. That's the, that's going to be the next big cybersecurity area. I'm just waiting for that shoe to drop. <laughs> waiting, waiting, like waiting for that shoe to drop. They like the data. They don't necessarily like the working on the, the back end side of things. Where do you see us headed in terms of interfaces? You worked for IBM and the interface side of things a lot. There's a lot happening now. There's voice, there's gesture. We've got augmented reality. Let me get some bold thoughts from you. In terms of where interfaces are heading, I think we're seeing, so the current state of interfaces, gestures are really interesting. Voices are really coming along. Virtual reality and augmented reality is not really there yet, but potentially really interesting. One of the things that I'm really tracking and and would love to see be more uh, widespread is more augmented reality uh, that's not tied to cumbersome headsets, which is one of the limitations of that technology today. So for example, on a construction site, what if you had all the information you need just projected in front of you without having to wear goggles? Um, That's that's super exciting. Uh, What if you, you know, the mechanic in the airplane repair shop could see exactly what he's supposed to do without having to look at the manual with his other hand and you know keep his hands buried in his work and have that information projected online around him. So I think augmenting our world with more information has to be done well so that we're not surrounded by advertising. But I think that's a really interesting direction for the future because there's all this digital information and getting it out into the real world is where the value is. Yeah, the question is, at least in construction, it would be easy because you've got to wear the construction goggles anyways or something similar. You'd pop it up there. I imagine we'll get to some type of contact lens. But if we do get to the point of things being essentially light fields, the uh, the advertising thing would be very troublesome in certain places, I imagine. What sci-fi movie do you think we're headed most towards? Or book? Or book. I, uh, I just recommended uh, this book by Werner Vinge called Rainbow's End to my office and everyone's and some people are reading it now that is the future that i want to be part of creating it's a it's a near future technology we have a lot of improvements in terms of wearable health uh, we have a lot of improvements in terms of wearable computing so uh, circuits that are sewn into your clothing and that you can just interact with through gestures and voice it's it's kind of along the lines of what we've been talking about in this interview where the digital world is starts surfacing in our reality through things that we interact with on a day-to-day basis. It's a really exciting future I'd like to be part of. Are we cyborgs yet or when or what is the crossing line? Uh, to be honest, if someone invents a brain computer interface, I'll probably want to be one of the first to get it installed. You I always don't think we're always wait yet. always wait a little bit for those those complications. <laughs> Elon wants to be on Mars, but he wants to die not on landing. Always wait a little bit. Yeah, okay, maybe the beta version. I, I waited a little bit for Lysa before I had that done. Were you scared? Terrified. Yeah. Uh, yeah, My my eye doctor makes fun of me because, you know, they make you read the fine print and the fine print says you could lose your vision or have all of these other terrible complications. But uh, in hindsight, it was totally the best thing I did. But going up to that decision, you can't see over that horizon and you don't know what's on the other side. Um, So it's always something really scary. Yeah, it's a black hole, literally. uh, I've looked into it. I hate that cheesy advertising they have for only $100 an eye. And then you look at the fine print. As long as your eyes are essentially perfect, it's a hundred dollars an eye. But yeah, if you have shitty eyes like me, it's like a thousand or two thousand an eye, and then it's like, hmm, and I could lose my vision. Mm-hmm. What should I have asked you about that I didn't ask you about today? You should ask me about what it takes to grow a robotics company. And one of the surprising things I found being in robotics is that it's such a multidisciplinary skill set that building a company you need to know a little bit about everything. And that's partly why I like it so much. It's, it's such a really interesting challenge. I get to learn everything from hardware to software to business and sales. Uh, but that was definitely not what I expected going in. What about on the funding side of things? How do you attract funders? Because at least up to date, software has been eating the world, which it has. That's been where the money is. But that's also because mm-hmm. that's where the easy returns are. Hardware mm-hmm. is hard. Hardware is hard. Um, there's many, many different answers to that question. First level answer is Robotics is eating the world after software, I think. Robotics technology is showing up in lots of different products. The, the fundamental technologies behind robotics are becoming cheap enough, widespread enough, and easy enough to integrate that they're going to start showing up in products that we didn't expect to be robotically enabled. So that's my prognosis for the robotics industry. In terms of funding, it's all about the, the product market fit. And do you have something that people want? Can you build it using technology that's available today? 
can you do it at a price point that's going to be profitable? And is there a customer base that's going to want to adopt it? And I think we've got all of those. And then the last question before we start to wrap things up, lethal autonomous weapons, where do you fall? Stuart Russell had this really awesome video about, uh, he's the UC Berkeley professor that developed this uh, fictional video of uh, drone weapons being used to, to carry out attacks on unsuspecting human subjects. Daniel Suarez also writes really interesting fiction novels about autonomous drone weapons. I've always been a believer that robotics needs human in the loop to provide that critical judgment and uh, common sense that autonomous systems lack. So I'm definitely not in favor of fully autonomous lethal weapons. I would like to have some human supervision, at least at the capabilities that we have today for AI. Ideally at the cost as well, because when you democratize destruction, there's always a few oddballs. Exactly. Okay, one last question before you let people know your spiel and where to find you. And that's, if you had to leave people with one thing, a quote, a call to action, it can be anything, what would it be and why? Good question. I think robots are coming. I think I'm super happy to be a part of it. And I think that we need more people in this field working to make them a reality and also thinking about what the impacts of them are going to be done. So come join me and talk about robots. Do it. Talk about robots and build that future with better robots because the people that build it are going to be the ones that create what we end up having. Thanks for coming on, Tessa. Where can people find you and learn more about getting dusty? Uh, You can find us on the web at dustyrobotics.com and I'm on Twitter at at TessaLab. And if you have an epic construction site and you want to make things way more awesome for you and your workers, check them out. Thanks. And thanks for coming on. Thanks, Matt. It's been a pleasure. Share this, guys. You like it? Like robotics? Share it around so that we can have a bigger impact. The more of you, the more of the disruptors that we are, we can get bigger change to happen in the world. Hopefully this inspired you. If it did, share it around, leave a review, and have an awesome one. Cheers. Be the change you want to see in the world. That's something I strive towards and fail towards every single day. If you enjoyed this podcast, if you think the world could benefit from conversations like this, the greatest compliment you can give us is referring to the disruptors to a friend or talking about us on social media. Please take 30 seconds to do so. It would mean the world to us. And if we're lucky, help us build towards a better world. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for helping us spread the message and have a great day. If you want more of the Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm slash iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.